reclaiming identity, sharing stories of struggle, pride, and redemption in reconnecting with our heritage. Hi, I'm Dora. And I'm Dahlia. And we're bringing you Reclaiming Identity as part of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Do you feel a part of the Jewish story? Is your family what pops up when people think of Jews? At Reclaiming Identity, we celebrate and explore the greater Jewish experience. We encourage you to tell your story and take pride in your heritage as it is a part of your identity. Listen to other people's stories, ask questions, be curious, and reclaim your identity. I had the sincere pleasure of welcoming Dr. Isaac Amon to our Reclaiming Identity podcast series. Dr. Amon is an attorney and counselor at law and the director of academic research and program development at Jewish Heritage Alliance, a global platform dedicated to promoting the legacy of Sfarad to the world at large. A descendant of Sfaradi, Mizrahi, and Ashkenazi Jews, he realized early on that he had a unique family background. He writes and lectures on law and history and has a special interest in the nuanced nature of identity across time and space. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am so pleased to be sitting here speaking with Isaac Amon from Jewish Heritage Alliance. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, it's it's great to be here. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to come and speak today. And we can just go right in because you were just talking about your last name and I had asked you how to pronounce it and you just had told me that it's actually not Amon, it's Hamon, like a lot. So. Well, in, right, so in Hebrew, it. It's Hamon, Hamem Vavnon, and it actually derives from the biblical passage in Parshat Lech Lecha, where when God or Hashem changes Avraham, well, Abram's or Avram's name, he adds the hey, and he says to him, you will be the father of many nations, Av Hamon Goyim. So it's actually Hamon, and we still retain that in Hebrew today, especially uh, in the synagogue. Uh, but at some point, the name in uh in the English uh, alphabet, it, it it dropped the H, although there are cousins who retained it in other countries. And so today it's just A-M-O-N, but it's still pronounced as Amon. Well, actually, Israelis always drop their Hays anyway, right? right. So it makes so, sense. Uh, it's, it's exactly. It would, still be, it would still be the same, right? Yeah. It would still be the same pronunciation. Interesting. So let, let's start first with um, how we met <laughs> this, uh, what you're doing here, because I think what you do uh, as your uh, profession is really important for what we're trying to say here today. So let's start with a little, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and why you do what you do. Well, great question. And uh, so I currently serve as the Director of Academic Research and Program Development at Jewish Heritage Alliance, as, as you mentioned. And that's, of course, a global platform dedicated to promoting the legacy of Sephirad to the world at large. And of course, JHA and ASF collaborate quite closely on, on, on those um, initiatives. Um, in terms of my own story as to how I got involved, um, so I'm actually a licensed attorney. So I really came kind of from two perspectives. The professional is this legal training and background. I, so I'm a licensed attorney. I've spent time working in a number of places, uh, but I always focused on the criminal procedural uh, element. I've always found the criminal justice system fascinating. And so I've worked uh, with criminal defense attorneys. I've been in the public defender's office. I also worked and assisted with some prosecuting work. I was actually at one point in law school and I attended Washington University in St. Louis or WashU. 
uh, law school, I actually was overseas in The Hague. I actually was on, a, on an appellate team at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia oh, wow. uh, in The Hague, one of the ad hoc tribunals. Um, so, so that was during law school. And then I also, <laughs> I, I've had a number of experiences, uh, but they all center around this. I also worked as director of legislative uh, services for the Department of Corrections for the state of Missouri, where I actually served as a lobbyist, effectively speaking with uh, state senators, representatives, other agencies, and I would testify on proposed legislation, how it would impact that department. And so I always wanted to see how the criminal justice system operated, you know, from beginning, from pretrial detention, all the way up to what happens when someone's incarcerated and locked away. So I think I've seen really a, a wide perspective on how that happens. And so with that professional emphasis, my personal background, we'll get into, uh, that really gave me an intense amount of interest in the Inquisition and how that operated. And so um, I actually ended up, after I got my JD and an LLM and, and dispute resolution, I worked for DOC in the state of Missouri. I actually went back to WashU and I actually graduated with a JSD or a doctorate in law, where I focused on comparative criminal procedure and, and some of it was analyzing inquisitorial uh, cases. Oh, I had previous exposure because even I remember in eighth grade in school, I we all had to write a paper. I did it on the 1492 expulsion of, of, uh, of course, of Sfardim, but of course I brought in the origins of the Spanish Inquisition at that time. And then throughout school, I remember in, um, in an undergraduate work in history department, I wrote a thesis on the Inquisition that was uh, you know, awarded highest honors by the Department of History. And so I think gradually over time, it's expanded. <laughs> expanded. Uh, so I've always had a very keen interest in, in that subject. Interesting. So let me let me go back a minute to your eighth grade. Do you remember what the other some of the other papers were back in eighth grade? I think something relating to their family history. I mean, it was obviously very basic. Um, it wasn't long. It was maybe 10 pages. But I remember one girl wrote about her grandfather's experiences of uh, surviving Auschwitz and uh, others wanted to write about some periods maybe in Jewish history they found interesting. So maybe the times of the Mishnah or the Talmud. Um, although I guess maybe as kids we're, we're drawn to the more contemporary times that we, in a sense, can relate to. Um, we have some greater exposure to through our parents and grandparents' uh, stories. But it was, it was something like that. And I knew right away when that happened. I said, I'm writing on, on 1492 in the Sephardic story. Personally, where were you born? Where were you raised? And then where is your family from? Uh, it's, a, it's a bit nuanced. Uh, I was actually born, uh, so born in the United States in Memphis, Tennessee. My father uh, was actually, I believe he was doing a medical fellowship at the time at the University of Memphis. So I was there. Uh, they were only there, my parents were only there for a year, but that's where I was born. Uh, but my mom is from St. Louis and she wanted to move back where, where her family had been living for a while. And so we came back when I was about a year old. So I don't know Memphis, I have no memories. Um, my whole life has pretty much been, you know, growing up and being raised in the St. Louis community. I've, I've traveled, of course, you know, to, to across the United States, to Europe, to Israel, to Turkey, um, etc. But I've always come back to, to the Midwest, to St. Louis. So in terms of in terms of the family, my mother's side is Ashkenazi. My mom was born in St. Louis. Her grandfather, her grandfather, her father, my grandfather, was also born in St. Louis oh, wow. uh, in, in 1913. So used to grow up hearing stories of a pre-Depression and, and even pre-World War One uh, 
uh, life. He actually recalled the United States entering World War I as a four-year-old boy. His mother ran a boarding house during the Great Depression, and so he used to tell me a lot of these stories. He actually, he was the second youngest of eight children, and he used to remember telling me stories of how he and his younger brother used to actually sell milk by horse and buggy. That's my grandfather. And um, he, he, he lived with us actually for 17 years. Uh, my, my mom's mom uh, actually immigrated to the United States from what is today the Ukraine, from a small village named Tolchin in, in the Venetia region. Um, and yeah, her family actually survived a pogrom in the aftermath of the Russian or Bolshevik revolution of 1917. My grandmother was born in 1916 there. And so as a young girl, they actually had to survive. I think they, they hid in a bale of hay and uh, it took them three years. Um, I've only learned about this recently. My grandmother, that grandmother died when I was four. So I only have one memory mm. of her, but talking to my mom, my aunt, other family relatives, um, they actually crossed the border from the Ukraine into I guess uh, into what is Romania, where they obtained a visa from the American embassy in Bucharest. And they wow. ultimately made their way to France where they were able to gain passage on board a steamer that came to Ellis Island. And they arrived in uh, the United States in 1922. So exactly a hundred years ago. And so my, my paternal side is the Sephardic and Mizrahi side. My, my dad was actually born in Istanbul and his parents were from that world. My, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather for whom I'm named, who's also Dr. Rene Isaac Amon, um, as his grandfather was, uh, Ishaq Amon Effendi. Um, so and you knew was, him, so you were named after him when he was alive. Yes. Yes, my grandfather only passed away a few years ago, but both my grandfathers lived into their 90s. So I, I, I knew them quite well. So he was from Istanbul, grew up there, um, born 1923, right after the Ottoman Empire was, was ended and Ataturk proclaimed the Turkish Republic. And so my grandfather actually met Ataturk as a teenager. He used, when he was going to, I think he told me he went to a camp that might've been in one of the Prince's Islands in the Sea of Marmara in Bukhada, right. where a lot of the Jewish community used to go to, to vacation. And at one point, I think he said Ataturk came to give a talk or an address to the people. And he and some friends rode over to hear him and they afterwards got to uh, meet him, shake his hand. And so, you know, he spoke seven languages, um, was friends with, you know, the Greeks, Armenians, you know, other Jews, Turks, he spoke, of course, all those languages, um, extremely cosmopolitan and also educated at the Alliance Israelite Universal. And then likewise, my my grandmother, um, Denise, Denise Nahmad, also from the Safra side of things, uh, a branch of the family, uh, was from Aleppo or Halab, and she was born in 1926. And then in 1938 or so, right before World War II started, her family moved to Beirut, and that's where she grew up. And she always used to tell me that Beirut in the 1940s, when it was the Paris of the Middle East, uh -huh. was the most beautiful city in the world. You know, they were, she was also, of course, quite fit friendly with Jews, Christians, and Muslims. And right. They never let religion divide them. They were always, it was natural to have to have friends of all different religions, ethnicities, nationalities, um, etc. And so, yeah, my grandparents ended up marrying in Istanbul uh, by the chief rabbi or Hachambashi in 1952. Because uh, there was a lot of interaction between the different communities. Yeah, well, my grandmother had an uncle who lived in Istanbul and she went to visit him. And uh, I guess she went to a wedding and my grandfather was there and they met and, and I think within six months they got married. And uh, and so they lived in Istanbul for about five years, and my dad was born, grew up there again, as three or four years old, and then they moved to Chicago in 1957. 
those are basically the three strands, if you will, the Ashkenazi side of things. Again, grandfather who, who grew up in the United States, the grandmother who immigrated to Ellis Island, that traditional Ashkenazi story. And then the other, the Sephardi side of Istanbul going all the way back to Spain to 1492, where his uh, ancestors served as uh, physicians, uh, also to the Ottoman sultans. And then my grandmother's that Halabi or Aleppo side of being in there for centuries. And so it all kind of <laughs> it came to, to coincide, if you will, or you have a confluence in us. And, and so I should note too, my, my, uh, my, uh, my grandmother, the one for the one from Aleppo, she also, she passed in 2013. So three of the four I knew very well. Um, and from a period of about 25 years from when my, grand, my maternal grandfather moved in with the house to when my other grandfather passed for 25 years, there was a grandparent who lived in our house. So you definitely heard stories from oh, all the different places. <laughs> absolutely. And, and uh, I might have told you at one point, but I always thought one of the neatest things was that not only could you hear, <laughs> I don't want to say competing narratives, but, <laughs> but I always found it um, very meaningful that I'd also hear different languages, cultures. So there was a time when you could hear Yiddish, Ladino, and Arabic being spoken at the same time under one roof. Do you speak any of those languages? So tragically, I don't. My, um, you know, I, I've tried a little bit here and there, but my paternal grandparents lived in Chicago. So I saw them, you know, every summer. They used to come here for high holidays. But, you know, I, I didn't grow up learning those languages, you know aside from a few phrases, and, and I can read uh, maybe the Ladino somewhat, but but not speak, although I certainly enjoy the music and the culture from, from both of those sides. And, uh, you know, the Yiddish, I've, I tried to pick up a few phrases, but then everyone wants to talk English anyway. So, right. uh, you know, in a sense, so in a way, it's a tragedy. I mean, I, I, I imbibed a lot of the stories I like to think and the traditions, the, the cultural memories, but the, the languages, unfortunately, didn't, didn't pass to me. Okay, so you had mentioned your grandfather ancestors, well, your ancestors as well, I guess, were uh, physicians to the Sultan, right? Yes, yes. So well, how so, do you know that? <laughs> well, a lot of it, I, I can't prove, I cannot prove an unbroken line, but I've been in contact with numerous other Ramon branches around the world, thanks to Zoom and WhatsApp, and, and I've been involved in family genealogy for a while. Uh, through 23andMe um, and other things like that. And so all of us have had a tradition for a long time that we're descended from 1492 uh, from Granada. In fact, actually my grandfather's DNA shows he has even a part, a part of the, the Spanish DNA actually appears in his, in his DNA. I managed his, uh, his account on 23andMe. Uh, he did it, of course, before he passed. So thankfully that opened up a whole new array of relatives that uh, there's just too little DNA in me to, to make the connection. Um, but in talking with other Amons and doing research, everyone has the same tradition that we're descended from these uh, Amons or Hamons uh, who were physicians to the Sultans. And the most notable one was actually born in Granada uh, right before 1492. And they left, he and his father, they left Granada, made their way to the Ottoman Empire, to Constantinople or Istanbul. Uh, as would later be known. They became uh, physicians to Sultan Bayezid II, the one who welcomed the Jews coming in 1492, his son Selim I, and then his son Suleiman the Magnificent. And this famous Moses Amon or Moshe Hamon is known because he also helped intercede with the Sultan and allowed Doña Gracia and Nasi 
to help come to the Ottoman Empire when she was fleeing Christendom and trying to find religious liberty uh, in oh, the Ottoman wow. Empire. And so that's kind of the, the connection. I can't prove, again, in an unbroken line yet, although we certainly hope to, uh, but that's the common tradition. It's the same name. It's the origin. And my grandfather's family, that branch was in Istanbul for centuries. I mean, as far as he knew, they were there since 1492. That's incredible. So it came down through the generations that you had this illustrious heritage. Yes, yes. And, and actually, not just even that. I mean, that, that is illustrious in and of itself. But, you know, his grandfather, for example, he used to tell me he, he knew him as a little boy. He was Ishaq Amun Effendi. And I went to Istanbul, actually, in 2019. And so I actually found the graves of my grandfather's parents and his grandfather. So I guess my ultimate namesake. And uh, it says in Turkish and in Hebrew, although the writing significantly deteriorated. I mean, he passed about a century ago. But with assistance, I was able to find it says, you know, he contributed greatly to his people. He was mourned for by the nation. He found out he so he was a professor of mathematics. He was also a rabbi. And my grandfather told me he was even offered the opportunity to become chief rabbi of the Ottoman Empire uh, at the time of the Turkish Republic, which he declined. He, he didn't want to get involved in political machinations. Uh, but but he was very highly respected. And there's actually an article I also found later on doing research with the National Library of Israel. They found his name. Uh, even in, I think, 1905, in a Ladino newspaper that mentions him as one of the most notable citizens of Istanbul. And then there's other, one of the other probably greatest benefits I, I learned uh, when I went to Istanbul, I, I was able to get in touch with the cousin of my grandfather's. Uh, his first cousin had just passed the same year as he did, but his son, my father's second cousin, um, I, I got in touch with. He took me around, showed me a lot of, you know, the, the historical sites of the family. I was even able to find the apartment where my grandfather grew up. And we went to Bukada, we went to the Prince's Islands in Borgaz, um, and Borgaz and saw these sites. And uh, he gave me a family tree that his father had worked on. And so using his father's family tree, my grandfather's knowledge that I had, we were able to piece together. So there are other chief rabbis who make their appearance in the family and the family history uh, as well. And uh, one of them is actually not even, uh, not a moan, but one of them was um, the famous um, Rabbi Chaim Palagi or Palachi of, of Izmir, who was the chief rabbi in the 1860s there. It sounds like it. So let's go back a minute to your eighth grade. And I'm sorry, I keep going back there, but you're sitting in your class. How much had you learned from class about 1492? I don't, I don't recall really learning almost anything about it. I, maybe there was a mention, but everything that I knew, I recall being taught at home. I mean, I, I of course it was, you know, imbibed in us at an early age. I, I don't even think I fully understood the immensity of what happened course at, at that age but I knew it was certainly a traumatic event for Sephardic Jews and it's a defining legacy of the story of course it still impacts us all today um, and yet I don't I don't recall ever learning if if anything what I recall is that you know people would say oh my Sephardic scholar but no one really knew what that meant and no one understood the the the, the kind of in-depth nature of what Sephardic identity is. And so I, I actually think when I, what I recall is when I had to write, when I wrote the paper, people were so fascinated by it. I actually was doing the educating to people, at least what I could, what I could say at the time. Did people think you were different because of it? Did people appreciate it? I think people find it fascinating. I mean, I think, I think some of it was just sheer uh, ignorance and, and it's not a bad thing. I mean, we're all ignorant of, of things that uh, just don't impact our day-to-day -day lives. You, you know, so I think uh, what I recall is, yeah, throughout life, most people don't know. Maybe they heard of 1492 because, of course, 
Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So of course everyone knows something happened then. And then you say Jews expelled en masse. Most people probably, at least in my experience, have heard something like that. They, they know something happened to Jews, but they don't know the vibrant, glorious history that existed for 2000 years before then. And they don't know what really a lot of it, what happened afterwards. It's almost like Sephardic history is, you know, just condensed in a single year and that's the end of the story. And so I think people are fascinated by it if, if they're, if they learn about it. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, I don't think a lot of people really know the, the full stories. But when, when I get a chance, and certainly others do to educate, I think most people find it really fascinating because it touches every aspect, I think, of, of the world in which we live. So I'm going to bounce up and down a little bit. So is that what made you decide to ultimately, or are you still involved in law? Are you still practicing law? So I, I consult at the moment. Um, I, I can't, I don't practice full-time. I, I don't have that time. All my work, uh, JHA, and promoting the Sephardic story, I don't have that time. Um, but I still um, consult with some lawyers, and I'm still able to write uh, law review articles. I did have some articles that were recently published in uh, Italy, Poland, even the Missouri Bar Journal for judges and lawyers. And I'm always drawing upon my, my interest in the Inquisition. And even judges and lawyers, I've had talks with the state level, the federal level, They've always found the Inquisition to be fascinating, um, and so uh, I, I, you know, one way or the other, it seems I always, in a sense, get to talk about it. So, how many other people growing up in St. Louis did you feel were similar to you in background? I'm sure there were other people who had escaped before the Holocaust that, or, were from St. Louis. But I'm saying the Sephardi side. Yeah. Sephardi side is very, very limited here. Um, you know, community is you know, it's smallish anyway. I mean, there's probably about, the estimates about 50 to 60,000 Jews. In terms of the Orthodox community, there's probably 500 Jewish families or so, give or take, that's what I've heard. And, uh, but there's no Sephardic synagogue. There's no Sephardic community. There's scattered remnants, if you will. But even then, in talking, most seem to be Sephardic in the broader sense, not the you know, the, the narrow Sephardic coming from Iberian Peninsula. And so when they say Sephardic, I say, oh, you mean Mizrahi. They don't have that same, as fascinating as the story is, and obviously I'm very uh, interested in that too, because again, my, my grandmother's side is, is that, is the Halabi side. But I've only met, I think, a few other people uh, who are really Turkish or Greek, who also had that same tradition of coming from, uh, from Spain in 1492. Otherwise, there's really, there's been nothing um, Sephardic in, in St. Louis. Um, so yeah, it was it was certainly I don't want to say difficult, but it was a bit limiting, I would say at times, because any Sephardic practices we do is more in the home, if you will, or you know I can educate people, but there's always a dominant uh, narrative and practice that's that's everywhere we go, at least in St. Louis, you know, Chicago, and my grandparents lived there, and my my grandparents were actually among the founding members of Sephardic congregation in Evanston or. Chicago, Illinois, they were very close to Rabbi Michael Azos. So, so that's kind of the, but, you know, we used to go to Chicago every now and then we go for high holidays, we go for certain events, um, but there's nothing in St. Louis like that. So did that affect you in any other way? Did you, I mean, you went to Chicago, so you, did you feel more part of the Jewish narrative when you were in Chicago? You know, I knew, of course, growing up, I always took pride and pleasure in and knowing the Sephardic heritage and learning the identity. But, you know, growing up, we went, we've always gone in a sense to Ashkenazi synagogues. And so, you know, that's more paradoxically, even though I'm very, of course, again, proud of the Sephardic heritage, 
paradoxically, the Ashkenazi tradition, in a sense, at least in the synagogue liturgy, is what I'm actually a bit more familiar with because sure. I grew up there. So when I go to Sephardic congregation, it's great. But then there would be certain times when, you know, I say I never felt comfortable when, you know, the entire congregation goes around and repeats certain things. I say, no, <laughs> I'm not right. at that level where I could uh, chant uh, the melody. Uh, because it's something I, I didn't know. Um, so in a way, it was nice to really see it. On the other hand, I actually, in a sense, was being exposed to it as an, as something of an outsider. So I've actually, it's been a mixed reaction, but in a way, it's good because I think it's it's like a melange or a synthesis of the two, you know, back and forth. And then if I go to the Ashkenazi synagogue, I feel comfortable, but then I say, this isn't the Sephardic approach. To, so it's uh, it's been interesting, but that's kind of how I, I feel when I go back and forth. So there's something inside you that's kind of not feeling a part of this or this. Yeah, yeah, I feel both. And, and again, I am partly both. So I feel that I can relate to to both. But yeah, I always make it a point though, I would I should say that whenever I leave St. Louis and travel, I always wanna to go to the Sephardic synagogue to, uh, to see it, um, to, to experience the, you know, again, the, the liturgy there. Um, I certainly feel an attraction to it and I feel a certain obligation to it as well. I'm going to let Dahlia take over here because she's half and half too. I mean, I, I definitely relate to what you're saying. My my looks kind of give it away more, but I guess your last name also gives it away. So there's something that you can't hide that you're not fully Ashkenazi. Growing up in a fully Ashkenazi community makes you feel like that part of you is uh, maybe stronger. So I was wondering how how did you even know like where to begin asking questions? How how did you decide all of a sudden to go to Turkey and and dive very far deep into this? Well, since a young age, I mean, I was always interested in history. I've always found that to be one of my core passions. And so I've always wanted to learn the stories. And as a young boy, um, and I, I mentioned this uh, earlier, you know, my grandparents lived with me. I mean, by and large, again, my supportive grandparents were coming back and forth. Although in the last years, my grandfather from Turkey, you know, lived with us for about five years. Um, I mean, solidly um, and, until he uh, until he passed. So as a, as a boy, I was always trying to learn stories. I always valued the importance of the oral, you know, storytelling um, and the traditions. And so I always wanted to do family trees. I remember um, as an early, again, as a young boy, I wanted to interview people. I even did that to some elderly relatives and, and other neighbors, um, I remember. And so you know, it kind of, I guess, kind of grew over time as I learned more and more. And in answer to your specific question, so I was doing my doctoral program in law in 2018 to 19, and uh, I was writing on the Inquisition. And, you know, my, my grandfather passed in October of 2018 in the midst of me writing. Um, and so I graduated or earned the degree in 19 um, with the, with the, you know, the PhD in law, the, the JSD. And I guess afterwards I thought, you know, it was kind of a, a moment. I thought, well, he's not here anymore to kind of turn to. I always wanted to visit Istanbul. He used to tell me all the time stories about the city uh, growing up and, you know, the uh, the olive trees, the, the fruit trees they used to have again on in their island, on on Bukala and in their home, in the Neve Shalom Synagogue, um, the culture. So after his passing, after I graduated, I thought, you know, if I'm ever gonna go, to Istanbul, this is the time. I, I have the time. I have the, you know, some some resources. My parents uh, fully supported me, and so I went that summer. 
uh, in 19. And I had a friend actually uh, from law school, uh, a Muslim friend who had came and he met my grandfather a few times. They always used to speak in Turkish to each other. And he always had said to me, if you ever come to Istanbul, you have a place to stay, you know, I will, you know, take you around, you know, keep you safe. So yeah, I, I went to Istanbul at summer. I was there for, I guess, a week or so. And uh, yeah, he picked me up at the airport, I remember, it was about 3 a.m. And uh, it was delayed flight getting in. And yeah, he, 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 you know, made sure I knew where I was going. He even set me up with the tour guide. Um, although some of it was on my own. It was a day or two I did with the tour guide. Um, and he even helped me correspond with my grandfather's cousin to make sure, you know, I was, he speaks English, the cousin does, but he wanted to make sure everything was okay. So they used to speak on the phone in Turkish. He'd take me to the port, you know, okay, get on this, uh, the, the boat, and then you're going to take it here. And so he, he helped me. And so it was really the, again, the culmination of different sources that allowed me to kind of go and it just came together. Um, and it was a great experience. I mean, it was very moving, very cathartic in a sense. And. I certainly would like to go again. What would bring you to go again? Well, I think there's there's more history to know. You know, I only got a brief glimpse, if you will, kind of at some of the the, the, the graves in the cemetery. I'd like to to go back to learn more. Um, you know, when I went, I remember, you know, I was kind of by myself. I knew where to go, but the people didn't really speak English. My friend and cousin weren't able to go with me at the time. And so I feel a lot I kind of lost out on one being able to learn more to to ask more questions. Uh, if you will. I also only got a brief glimpse at the Neve Shalom Synagogue. I was able to go in. I did talk to some people, including the one of one of the rabbis there, um, but, you know, it was a very brief visit. So I'd certainly like like to go kind of learn more. I did find the Ketubah, my grandparents, in Neve Shalom uh, at the time. So that was very moving. Um, but I feel that, you know, I'd like to go back, see the cousin, and uh, and just kind of learn more about, about the family and, and see, you know, for me, bringing the past alive is really important and um, you know it's one thing to read it in books but if there's a chance to go back and experience it firsthand the other reason I would say is I feel that when you go to a place where there were these once great Jewish communities and I've done the same in Poland I, I feel like you're giving strength and support to those Jewish communities you know sometimes they feel that world Jewry I don't want to say abandon them but they feel that when you come and they say wow someone came from the United States and they're here I think it's a great moment of joy that you're connecting with that community and that they know you know they're they're not forgotten um, and that people do remember and you spend your money you help them and they teach you about your family roots so it's kind of a win-win have you have you been to Seattle where there's a very large Sephardic community no I've uh, there was a time a few years ago I was going to try to go. And I remember at the last minute, something came up and I couldn't. So I have not been to Seattle. <laughs> um, not only I do I know, though, is there a large Sephardic community, there's a big Amon family or Ammon family, as they say. They don't pronounce uh -huh. the same. Um, but I usually get all the time, if I meet someone and they're from Seattle, do you, where are you in Seattle? Who's your family? But I'd like to, I'd like to go, sure, it's at some point. And see, I, I did meet some people from there. Um, I've, you know, over the years at various Sephardic events, but I've never uh, had the chance yet to go to Seattle in person. How would you see yourself bringing, to, like, the things that you're seeing alive in, in Turkey to your life um, in the U.S.? And maybe Seattle is a big Sephardic community, so somehow they're able to do that, but maybe in more niche places. How do you see that coming to life, aside from just telling the story? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I guess certainly they they do a good job of of you know retaining the contemporary practices. I 
I mean, I feel some of it's from a personal level. I mean, if you're able to go and there's a family connection, it's, it, you know, you feel the connection and, you know, there's nothing that substitutes, they say, you know, for, for being there. I, I'm not sure what I do different. I guess I just would feel that kind of the full circle was made. I, I agree. Look, Seattle is an important place. I, I would go too. I just feel though that since there are still family members who are there and I could learn more and maybe learn some more individual family customs from their family history, you know, that's not going to be learned in Seattle. I mean, I'd love to go from the community's perspective or a communal perspective, but on the personal side, I, I would, I would go back just, just to know more about, you know, my family and, and be able to talk to people that I know while they're still there. So I think, you know, one complements the other. Aside from um, synagogue, are there other customs that you do no matter where you are, if you're in an Ashkenazi synagogue or that are specifically Sephardi? Yeah, wherever I am. I mean, I'll, <laughs> I don't want to be stereotypical, but I'll say I never would give up rice on Passover or Pesach. I mean, that's, that has to stay. Um, I still have childhood friends, by the way, who remain jealous of that fact. <laughs> uh, even even today, you know, the other the other big thing that that I would certainly retain, no matter where I live, is you know, I'm I'm not married and I don't have children. But if when that day occurs, you know, I'm named for my grandfather as he was named for his, and they were, you know, he was living when my grandfather was born. Of course, I was living when he was born. So I think that's a very important tradition to to keep too. So naming is important. The cultural practices, I think, in holidays. Another thing I've always done is you know, early on, you know, from bar mitzvah, you wear the talit, right? Even if you're not married in the Sephardic tradition, um, as opposed to the Ashkenazi, you have to wait to be married. So I've always done that. And, 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 I, and I, you know, always will. I mean, I guess at some point it wouldn't matter, but <laughs> it would be the same, but, but I've always done that. So certain things I'd be willing to maybe concede, you know, I, I wouldn't, if I was, if I was leading the congregation in, in prayer, I of course would daven the, the, the Nusak, the Ashkenazi, when they would do, but privately, I prefer to dive in the Sephardic approach. You know, if I, if I, if I can't, so I bring my Sephardic Sidor with me, things like that. Just a question about the naming. What did your Ashkenazi grandparents think about it? Because as far as I know, Ashkenazim don't name after living family members. No, I, I think they, they were fine with it. They actually thought it was very meaningful because at least my grandfather thought it, my other grandfather <laughs> thought, I think it was kind of neat to see your you know, grandson name for you, you know, while you're living. Now, it's funny, though, because when my brother was born, I have two younger brothers, and when my middle brother was born, and, and, and as I told her, he actually, um, he actually just, just had a, uh, a baby boy, but when he was actually born, um, you know, of course, he, the tradition would have been to name him after my mom's dad, but he's Ashkenazi, so they couldn't do it, so he actually ended up naming for my grandfather's father, so you know, I, I think my grandfather may have even wanted to be named, but then he thought, well, but the custom is not to do it. So the compromise was after his father. So I, but I think he was fine. There, there was a time when, you know, they were living under the same roof. So, you know, we were eating rice and my grandfather was not, you know, um, and then said you would have Yiddish, Latino, Arabic, you know, under the same, the same roof. So no, my, my grandfather, my, all my grandparents much kind of the live and let live and they saw the beauty and the diversity of approaches. Which yeah. I got a little Be Beirut in St. Louis. That's what it felt like for sure. <laughs> you know, Beirut, Istanbul. That, that's another thing, by the way, that reminds me um, that it's okay to have, you know, friends who are not Jewish and that you can teach one another. You know, there's there's certainly a universal aspect to Jewish um, to Jewish approach. And I mean, if we if the Jews are supposed to be a light unto the nations, well, 
that can't be done if you don't have friendship with other nations. So that's the other thing that I really took from them is that even in Aleppo, Beirut or Istanbul or Chicago, I mean, they always pride themselves on having friends of different nationalities, ethnicities, religions, and they never saw a conflict with their Jewish identity in doing that. It was a seamless transition. They never questioned, could I be Jewish and expose myself to this type of, you know, learning or, or, or having friends? It was, everything was one. Everything was kind of encompassed within divine unity, if, if you will. So that's kind of a very important, I think, lesson that they taught me that I wholeheartedly subscribe to. You know, and I was just, that's another thing to add sometimes, and it's not, um, you know, everyone does something different, but I'll say that's, that, that point that they instilled in me that I that I believe in, I do try to bring that across sometimes to, to Ashkenazi um, circles, you know, um, that, you know, again, it's not sacrificing your Judaism or your Jewish identity to be open to other, you know, schools of thought or other teachings. I mean, if anything, it only complements and you see the great symbiosis of life you know, or synthesis of different traditions, if you will. And that's something I'll always take wherever I go, whatever synagogue or community I find myself in. Well, that's huge. I first want to say thank you, because that's one of the questions that we want to ask you. What do you want future generations to know? And I think that's a big part of the Sephardi philosophy and the Sephardi heritage is you live in this world and you need to be a part of this world as well. Is there another particularly interesting custom that you think really stands out there? I'd say more probably philosophically, it's that approach. Um, is is about the cosmo the cosmopolitanism, uh, you know, never being afraid to to I think to question yourself. You know, Maimonides has that famous uh, aphorism that you know you have to accept the truth from no matter where it comes, and and that's very big. You know, just because it comes from someone who's uh, not not observant or not Jewish doesn't mean it's not true. Um, and so I always that sense of openness, that sense of you know, if you're so, if you're confident in who you are and in your identity, then then you know, being challenged or being open to other points of view is is not a problem. If anything, it can only help you learn and grow. I think, and and again, in the sense of not being afraid to have friends or of, of other different um, you know traditions and, and cultures. Um, you know, I, I I'd like to think that not only do they in a sense influence us. Not saying they're going to convince me to no longer be Jewish, but you know, I like to think I influence them. Um, you know, in a sense, and maybe just maybe you give them a different perspective on on on, on Judaism and you know Jewish Jewish life and and um, and so yeah, I, I think I think again it can help us all. Aside from telling the Sephardi story to your friends, have you shared it with non-Jewish friends? And has that been eye-opening for them as if maybe all they know is Ashkenazi Jewry or all their association is with Ashkenazi Jewry and to learn that there's this other rich history? Yeah, so, you know, I, so in my work that I do with Jewish Heritage Alliance, webinars do attract some, I'm sure, some non-Jews. I don't know to what extent. Um, obviously, it's predominantly Jewish, and I, I think even in that, it's predominantly Ashkenazi. But yeah, no, I've always told my non-Jewish friends um, from law school, from university or college, even professors, I, I have told them about the Jewish, uh, the Sephardic approach. Again, I think most seem to be aware, especially you know, some of my friends from the Muslim or Arab countries who, who've come to study for example, you know, in, in St. Louis, or that I've known abroad, you know, abroad. Um, so they are aware, but they don't know to what extent. And so I've always told them um, about it. And I think they're always pleasantly surprised to learn the extent, you know, I, I remember reading 
some things that in the aftermath, for example, of um, you know the horrible, the horrible carnage that ISIS did in Iraq and Syria. So you know there were some programs. Um, maybe SF did something. I'm not sure, but uh, you know they had the former Iraqi Jews come online and you know the ones who were expelled from Mosul. Um, and I used to talk about this with some non-Jewish friends. These these Iraqis of today, the contemporary or millennials. They'd say, I never knew there were Jews in Mosul. I never knew there were Iraqi Jews and they look like us and they talk like us. And so I kind of felt the similar. Well, I didn't know there were Jews in, you know, Turkey or, uh, I mean, my, my one friend did, but, uh, but I have encountered that. And I like to think that they do leave saying, wow, I'm going to look this up. I, I, I didn't know. And, and I've gotten some very nice feedback from people, from friends, relatives who said, I, I knew nothing about this. Uh, yeah, the Jewish, the Jewish uh, heritage, as you said, this completely other vibrant branch that's that's given so much to the world and, and still does. I definitely had that experience because I studied Arabic, let's say, and the reason I studied Arabic was because of my Jewish Yemenite grandmother. And when I explained that to my Arabic teacher or to people in my class, they were unaware they were Arabic speaking Jews. Uh, so it's definitely, it's definitely yeah. um, so in edu education also for the, the non-Jewish world. And I think it also brings people together that way. When you don't have just Eastern European Jews, you can maybe relate to Jews more um, if you know that they've come from a country that's near you or in your region. No, 100%, I, I would agree with that. They, they, they speak your language. The synagogues are modeled in a sense, maybe the, the liturgy, it's influenced by the surrounding cultures, the, the cultural practices, for sure. I mean, you know, if, if you've ever been into a mosque, I mean, it's not so dissimilar from, <laughs> you know, the Sephardic synagogue in a sense. I mean, the melody, the chanting seems very similar. And I, I actually used to tell Muslims that. So you come to a Sephardic synagogue, you'd feel right at home. It helps us, it helps the wider Jewish community and the larger world. I think that's a really strong way to say it. This is this is our light into the nations. This is being part, bringing everybody together and not only the Sardi and Ashkenazi sides of all of us, but also the uh, Muslim, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, etc. Don't mean to leave anybody out. Um, is there any one more thing you want to say to everybody? I would encourage, uh, you know, I guess anyone, if, if anyone is lucky enough to still have a grandparent or a parent, I'd encourage people to to ask them questions, to learn the stories, to write them down. Because, you know, I will say kind of one regret I have is, you know, I, I think that I asked my grandparents, you know, I write it down. I tried to commit a lot of it to memory, of course. But, you know, I my regret is I didn't ask them more. And, um, you know, and I don't know if it's because I was afraid sometimes or if I felt I was intruding, but you know, people want to share their stories and their experiences. And the important thing is to know it before it's gone, because once these, once the generation, once the people are gone, these stories are, are gone. And uh, so if we see ourselves as links in the chain of transmission, well, the only way to continue the, the link or the chain is to know the story and the practices, you know, and, and I guess I'd like to conclude by saying, you know, history informs the present and vice versa. I mean, you know, if, if someone only knows the history and does nothing in present day or does nothing to practice in the contemporary world, well, history is just gathering, you know, dust on a shelf. But on the other hand, it's important to have, I think, historical awareness, at least somewhat, and to know your family's stories and to take pride in them. Because, you know, why remain faithful to the tradition? Why pass it on to children? And you see yourself as, again, a larger link in the chain of transmission. They really complement one another. They're not opposed. And 
that's kind of what my message to everyone would be, regardless if you're Jewish or not Jewish or Sephardi, Ashkenazi, Mizrahi, you know, we're, we're all humans. We all have this need to share stories, to see ourselves as, you know, something bigger than ourselves. And, in, and by doing this, we live on, you know, through others. And so, you know, we're just, I like to say, we're temporary custodians, if you will, of the tradition for a generation or so. And uh, so, you know, certainly we hope that we will transmit the story to the next generation in the way it was transmitted to us. But that only happens if someone takes the time and the willingness to, to learn it from those who come before you. And so that's what I would encourage everyone to do, because you don't want to look back and regret that you didn't ask these questions or these stories when there was time. Definitely. And that's why it's also important that we have the Jewish Heritage Alliance and the Institute of Jewish Experience allow, helping people to create that link from the past to the present. Right. And, and I'll just say there's no such thing as a stupid question and no one should ever be ashamed to ask, what does this mean? How did this come about? There's, there's no such thing, you know, and, and you only learn by asking questions and uh, it's never too late, you know, to get on board and no one should ever think that the time has passed. I mean, you know, as I said, I, I learned quite a bit. I like to think <laughs> from my grandparents and, and, you know, but if you, you know, don't be afraid to take the bold step in a sense of venturing out of your comfort zone. I mean, going to Istanbul was a huge, was a, was a one giant leap in a sense. And, you know, it was a bit obviously uncomfortable. I mean, I felt some familiarity from the stories and I knew some people, but I'm glad I went. And, and, and obviously it was, more, it was much more meaningful and it really brought home the, the vividness of, of the stories and uh, the history to me. And it, it only, you know, fortifies the resolve to pass on the traditions to other people, whether that's future generations or my family and friends today and so yeah and encourage everyone to to do this and, and to get involved and to 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 follow these organizations that are doing such great work definitely and it's really amazing that you got to go to istanbul it's a little too bad they didn't get to go to aleppo and beirut and now ukraine but god um, willing inshallah one day I, I i do hope the time will come when when it is safe to go there um you know, to, to do these places. And uh, I mean, I, I'd like to continue. I mean, Istanbul is one part, it's it's an immense story and, and it's a glorious story, uh, but it's just one of, of multiple intersecting, you know, networks or, or factors that make my story, but the larger story. And that's, that's I think that's another point, maybe a lasting point too, is that, it, you know, it's not just the Sephardic story, it's the Jewish story, as you both have said, you know, Istanbul is the same as you know ukraine and these are all just you know sub narratives of the larger jewish one and and it all comes you know at the end of the day from sinai all these stories you know come from the hundred generations that that have gone since we you know stood at the foot of, of the mountain definitely all all pieces of the jewish mosaic which is exactly. why so glad that you shared your story with us. Um, I mean, your story is mosaic and it's a microcosm of a greater Jewish experience. And I really hope that people um, listen and learn to ask questions, just like you ask questions and get inspired by your research because uh, we all have so much to learn from our stories and about the greater Jewish experience altogether. So thank you so much for speaking with us. And thank you. Thank you for listening. Reclaiming Identity is produced and edited by Moshe Singer and executive produced by Dalia Arusi and Drora Arusi. Our theme music is by Vanessa Paloma. Be sure to check her out on Spotify. Be a part of the reclamation. Subscribe to the Reclaiming Identity podcast on our website, instituteofjewishexperience.org, on our Facebook page, Spotify, or Apple Music. 
Follow our programs on our website and the Institute of Jewish Experience channel on YouTube. And please help support these and other ASF Institute of Jewish Experience efforts by donating today. Moses Ali.